Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, Herstory heroes, and welcome to another episode of Whining About Herstory, the women's podcast where two longtime gal pals drink some wine and chat about women from history you may not have heard of. And we're still covering our Pride Month. Not that they don't deserve, you know, like a year or more, but specifically this month we're covering Pride, and I'm Kelly. And I'm Emily. And yeah, our our longtime listeners, and I think we've said this at the top of every Pride episode, we do not only cover the LGBTQ plus community during Pride, but this is like a special, it's like a month long highlight reel. So basically it's, this is the weirdest sentence I'm ever going to say. We only cover the LGBTQ plus community during Pride, but we don't only cover them during Pride. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 English language. Hell yeah. It's hard. Well, thank you so much for joining us again for another episode. This I was like, are you is... just going to do a new intro? Was my intro not good enough for you? You know what, Kelly? I'll just re-record it later. It's fine. No one's ever going to hear it. Yeah. I don't listen to our... Ep- you could do that to every single episode and I would never know. I hate that you don't listen to our episodes. Hate is a strong word, but so I'm like, like, but Kelly! Sometimes. I don't know. It's it's sporadic, I should say. It's, I ne- it's not that I never listen. It's sporadic. But yeah, this is episode 65. That is insane. I feel like we were just celebrating episode 50 like a week ago. Right. I know. It's insane. I'm excited. Like a month and a half ago. <laughs> I hope everybody else is as excited as we are. I hope so. Before we get started, Kelly, you have a say their name. I do. Once I remember their name. Well, really quick, while while you're uh, digging through the wrinkles in your brain. Yeah, thank you. Been there. Always there. Our, for our new listeners, our Say Their Name segment at the beginning of most episodes, we usually highlight someone, you know, man, woman, either, neither, nor, whatever, uh, who is doing something cool that we want to highlight and give them a shout out. We've also done listener requested say their names. We had a listener who uh, shout out his mom, Veronica. Hi, Veronica. Veronica. I hope she's still listening. I fucking love her. We love you, Veronica. I still think of her. I'm like, I hope Veronica's doing okay today. I hope she's having a good day. Right. Um, But just being like, hey, my mom's really awesome. If you could give her a shout out. And so he gave us some information. We talked about her. And now Veronica's like our favorite. Um, <laughs> but this month we are uh, highlighting LGBTQ plus people, podcasts, organizations, artists, etc. Yes. So we on our podcast have chosen a narrow scope, which is what you have to do as a podcast. And so we have chosen to cover women in history particularly unknown women. So we've mentioned before, like, we're not going to cover Marilyn Monroe. We're not going to cover people like that. But that also means, especially during this time, we're missing half of the trans community. We're missing, you know... Non-binary people. Yeah, non- non-binaries. Um, pe- um, people who don't identify in general. as women. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're missing, like, a whole huge chunk of the pie because we are a women's history podcast and we are highlighting women. Yes, and but I came across this person... Most pronouns are she, her, because that's how she referred to herself back when she was born. But that might not be it today because she was born like in the 40s. That's a thing. Actually, it was before the 40s. She was like an adult in the 40s. Yeah. Her name is Polly Murray or Murray. I don't know how you pronounce that. And she was incredible. And she, she she was big into civil rights, women's rights. But she did come out during her lifetime and say that 
she f- internally felt like a man. She knew she was a man internally. So that's I had done all this research and then I read that and I was like, I feel like I can't cover him because he identifies as a male. And while I would love to because the story is incredible and she actually, or he, sorry. It's, it's hard when you do tons and tons of research with she, her pronouns. Right. And then... There's like a surprise twist at the end. By the way, he actually did express that he felt like he was a man, even though even in his own memoir, he did use she, her pronouns. Right. His work was used by Ruth Bader Ginsburg to convince the Supreme Court that the Equal Protection Clause applies to women. Holy shit. And he was a part of all this other stuff that like came to really big laws being passed. And it was his work that was like the groundwork. He was also really big friends with like Eleanor Roosevelt Hell and yeah. like all of this other stuff. And so I just wanted to give him a shout out and tell people to go and look him up. He was also African-American. So like on top of all of this other stuff going on. He's he, feeling he's you know, he had the racism. race card as well. Um, yeah. And yeah, it was he was one of the first quote unquote women in like law in his area, but because yeah. everyone understood him as being a woman and even he expressed himself as a woman, though right. he was like, yeah, I, I, I'm a dude. I feel like a man inside. Oh, um, it was he had a big play on um, the equal, equal, but separate, but equal. He did a lot on that. OK, because that was, you know, the Jim Crow and all of that. Like, so he had a big thing about like that. He also like did the separate but equal but on women's side like when he applied to I want to say Harvard I might be wrong on that so don't quote me but he applied to a a law school and they were like yeah we don't accept women okay so it was equal opportunity yeah and so she she responded and and she was like I'm sorry like she actually told them she's like if I could if I could become a man to get into your school I would do it but it's easier for you to change your rules than me to become a man oh shit yeah, so he, I, I know I'm mixing my pronouns and I apologize, but go look into Polly Murray or Murray. It's P-A-U-L-I-M-U-R-R-A. I think that's Murray. Yeah. I think so. I'm um, actually, I'm probably the New, wrong. The New Yorker actually has a really good article and they, they use the she, her pronouns and that's what they, they actually say in their article. They call it out. It's about halfway down to the article, but they even say they're like, we use these pronouns because that's how in their lifetime you know he referred to himself but that's probably because it wasn't really a thing back maybe then. he didn't really have the uh the language to express exactly and so then i get why the new yorkers doing that because they're like you know we're just setting the precedent that was laid by the person themselves exactly but i yeah so the new yorker has a really good article called the many lives of polly murray and i would go read it i do just want to like because I know you won't say it. I do want to give you a lot of credit. So Kelly was going to cover Polly and uh, found, like, found out there is this gray area within the pronouns. And, and and it wasn't even just like, well, you know, they were they may have been gender fluid or they may have been gender neutral or, you know, it was like this person came out and said, I feel like a man inside. And right. that was kind of, OK, we can't. We, we Kelly did not feel comfortable painting this person as a woman on a women's history podcast. Yeah, when, at, when they when had said 
I I know I'm a man inside. And so that is why they are say their name. But Kelly did a ton of research into Polly. So much research. And and because everything does use feminine pronouns. Right. And there was no inkling until that one line. I feel like I'm a man inside. Oh, no. Okay. (laughs) There is so much trans, queer, bi, color erasure when it comes to articles, especially from that time, mm-hmm. that, yeah, like, I didn't see it until, like, I read the New Yorker article and I was like, well, shit. <laughs> but it was really interesting and I'm really glad that I learned about him and I think everyone should. But, yeah, I was a little bit peeved because I was like, I just did all this research and now I need to start over. <laughs> but uh, that's a really good say their name. That reminds me, in episode two, there was a doctor I was going to cover who was born a female but uh, dressed and identified as a man to yep. practice medicine. And it was one of those like, okay, is this a Mulan situation where this person is a woman, identifies as a woman? Which we have covered some of those. And we have done that, like uh, Kathy Williams. Those are particularly women in wars. Yeah. You know, it's it's like, it's, it's a whole it's little a genre. <laughs> but then I was finding articles about how, well, we don't know right. that this person wasn't a trans man and this is, could be a really good example of trans erasure i'm like oh shit so they were my say their name right and that that's why <laughs> i'm doing it this time although i will say i am still kind of i'm in a gray area of our podcast for the people i am covering as they i would say are either gender fluid or non-binary gender I'll get into that when I get into my story. I'm second today. But that's the other reason I felt that the say their name was kind of appropriate. Yeah. But mine was a listener request and I really wanted to honor it. And they're they're two amazing people. But yeah, they from all the research I did, they do appear to be um, gender fluid or neutral. Okay. I am really excited to hear about them. And yeah, we, we're crossing into some gray area territory. We did, uh, yeah, set limitations for us with this podcast as far as gender goes. We're treading over the line a bit, but I think these are two people, just from what you've told me, who their stories are definitely worth telling. And for Pride Month, I think it's definitely the time to share those stories. Right. Exactly. Before we get started, I also do have a quick, like, shout out. To uh, our co-host. Oh, well, yes. Uh, so we have a special guest today. That you won't um, hear because she'll probably be sleeping. My my tiniest tiny pug Navi. is in the office with us because my husband's not home and she would probably destroy the house. Slash putting her in her kennel. Sometimes she like screams and that would be worse for the podcast. Guys, is your podcast haunted? No. No, that, no that's a just pug. a dog. Um, yeah. But social media, there's a picture of it. Yes, yes. She's very cute. She's sleeping right now in her in her co-host chair. Yeah, I put a I put a chair between me and Emily and put a really soft blanket on it and she's sleeping. She's very happy. Yes, she is. But uh I so if you hear some barking or some movement in the background, like I, I'm pretty sure she was barking a little bit ago when you were talking. And so yeah, it's just Navi. Tari up on the stairs. She's just going, Hey, listen, listen. <laughs> yes. God exactly. damn it, Navi. Um, but I do have a quick shout out. So uh, my friend Tierney, who's an amazing person and artist, mm-hmm. uh, she was the one who had recommended Uth. Uth. Uma, wow. Are we going Uma Thurman? I mm. am just going to eliminate all the consonants from my speech. It's going to be great. Well, it's going to be great. I'm excited. Great podcast. I am excited. Best episode ever. She had recommended Ruth Ellis to me last week. And... Tierney, I think, had found her on like a Facebook post that gave a very brief overview of Ruth Ellis. So she listened to the episode and texted me and she's like, 
oh my God, that was amazing. I didn't know 90% of what you covered. Right. And she didn't know about the Ruth Ellis Center. So Tierney just celebrated her birthday upon this recording yesterday. And she set up a Facebook fundraiser for the Ruth Ellis Center. Because Which she, is awesome. Yeah. So she had heard about Ruth Ellis, told me about her, learned even more and was like, this shit needs some love. And Tierney has a bunch of family in Michigan. And uh, that's where the Ruth Ellis Center is. So it works on so many levels because she loves Michigan. And she started her goal at $200 and then passed it and raised it to, you know, $300, $350. And last I checked, she was $25 away from a $400 goal. Wow. And the fundraiser lasts for two weeks. And so she's just going to keep upping it. But she has raised almost $400 for the Ruth Ellis Center. Which is awesome. I'm so fucking proud of her. She was going to donate to, um, I, I don't know if it's the Marsha P. Johnson Association organization, but there's a Marsha P. Johnson nonprofit, but they yeah. didn't have a, a thing on Facebook. And then after learning about Ruth Ellis, she's like, oh, shit, this is perfect because Ruth Ellis is a black woman. She's a lesbian. It's pride and Michigan. Like right. uh, Tierney was like, this was made for me. It kind of was like it was destiny. And so shout out Tierney. I fucking love you. I'm we, so we proud both of you. Do. Happy birthday. Yay. I'd sing you the song if it wasn't copywritten. Right. Yeah. But uh, I, I'm just I'm really proud of her. And it's just another example of what an incredible person she is. So. Yay. Yay. She's also a listener, so I know she'll hear right. this and be like, God damn it, Emily. I was about to tell you to talk about your person, but then I was like, wait, we haven't talked about the wine yet. Oh, yes. The wine. The wine. The wine that we worked really oh, hard God. to open. It was such a struggle. Like, I think I have was, a was, cork in mine. Do you? I, I'm pretty sure Too I have. I see. have to deal with it. No, that's why I picked this glass, because I was like, well, Kelly worked really hard to get the cork um, open. The so least like, I can do is drink it. It went fine for the first chunk, and then it became a chunk. Like, it just, it, like, the cork just broke in half, and it sucked. Yeah, so we, we ended up using needle out. nose pliers. Emily, Emily tried to use a fork and actually managed to break a part of the, break a part of the bottle. But I got it so that you could grip it appropriately yes. with the needle nose pliers and get it out. It was What's it was work. Gonna work. Teamwork. Can you hand me the That's bottle? That's what gets you drunk. I'm pretty sure there's nothing on it, but I just want to check. It's decently pretty art. It kind of looks. Um, like street art, like a uh, graffiti. Yeah. I was like, what is the term? <laughs> so this is a wine called Others. Um, it's a 2015 Grenache. Are you, are you okay? It's a product of France. There's a little bit of cork on the inside of my glass that I just um, fished out. Contains sulfites <laughs> like all wines. You want to take this back? Yes. All right. So this is what it said at the store. I picked it because of the name, though, let's yeah. be honest. Um, but it says, a profound cardinal hue with aromas of rhubarb compote, savory roasted plum, star anise, and the best thing you want to hear about a wine, leather. Nothing says a good time like drinking I mean, at least leather. at least they're saying that's what it smells like. They're not saying it tastes like leather. Opening with potent flavors of cola, dark fruits, raspberry jam, and baking chocolate. A purpose, a purposeful finish. The wine close. I'm pretty sure it's supposed to say closes with acidity and polished tannins. They're basically describing a shoe. It tastes like leather and it no, has it smells polished like tannins. Leather. I like that it says baking chocolate, which means it's probably going to be um, bitter. 
because baking yeah. chocolate is always super bitter. God, I remember making that mistake. I was like digging through the cupboards as a kid, looking for something sweet, found my mom's baking chocolate, and mistakes were made. So I made us glasses for with our new glasses. So when you see these, this this is going forward. If you buy or Patreon wine glasses, this is what you'll get. And it's actually really cool. So these glasses are taller. Yeah, they're, uh, they're taller and skinnier. So I was able to make our logo bigger. It looks. Re- I'm. I really like these. One in the picture. One looks shittier than the other. It, I pick only the nice ones to send to people. That's why we yeah. have the shitty glasses. Yeah. The, these. Were Emily's the over there. Ones. Like, I think it looks more authentic because you make them it yourself, does. and I'm like, I fucking hate how it looks. No, it does because it kind of has that like you know in old writing when they're writing with the it ink would pen blink and it, or there's some blotch. bleeding. I was like, what is like the word? this just looks super authentic. Like a pirate would have whining about her street wine glasses. I like them because because they're etched, they're dishwasher safe. Unlike when you get like vinyl products and they're like, yeah. "Do not put this in the dishwasher." Don't even look at a dishwasher. <laughs> but yeah, so get ho- it out of your house. Hopefully, people will like the new design. Yeah. If not, you have to wait eight glasses before I can switch back because I have <laughs> eight more of these glasses. I haven't, ma- I haven't, I haven't etched them yet, so I guess I could do something else with them. But no, deal with it. All right, where are we choosing to? I don't know. Let's. So this is our last episode for Pride Month. Cheers to a happy and safe Pride for everyone. Cheers. Cheers. Ooh, these yeah, clink makes nice. it more because yeah. That's bitter as hell. It's really acidic. I don't hate it though. I can't taste it. It's just like sour. I had to leave it on my tongue for a little bit. Hold on, let me try again. Maybe it's the cork is like interfering. <laughs> I'm more worried about getting a chunk. I, I I don't think any glass fell in, but I'm still a little worried. This burns. This is like the whiskey of wine. I mean, it's not great, but I don't hate it. Like, I don't I can't explain it. There's something I don't hate about it. Yeah, this is we're we're ha- we're usually on the same page. We are having very different reactions to this wine. Emily's, usually, I'm the one that like cringes and makes faces. This time, it's Emily. Yeah, I, I'll I'll drink just about anything as long as it's, it's not pirate church wine or yeah. port. So now okay, circling back to that because Emily mentioned it. Our friend Drew, who drinks most of our leftover wine, because I don't drink a ton now because of the surgery that I had several months ago. Long-time listeners will know that I had surgery a few months, several yeah. months ago. By several, I mean like seven <laughs> or eight. Um, but so Drew, actually from the beginning of this podcast, has been drinking our leftover wine. And he really, really liked the Greek church wine. Mm-hmm. So I gave him the port, that, which to us tasted very similar to the Greek church wine. Apparently, that was not as good as the Greek church wine because the Greek church wine was like sweeter. And so he drank it. He finished the bottle, but he did not really like the port which is super so, funny because that's an the update port, i could tolerate more than the greek church wine because yeah. that was the greek church wine was uh really syrupy yeah it, it was, was really raisiny thick. and that's what he liked I it guess. was a thick boy all right well i am going first today you and are. uh i am covering edith edie windsor and uh, so I Kelly, briefly you week. actually you did mention her very briefly in your story, your story on passing. 
Stormy last week as being one of the women that she was honored alongside. Yep. And I'm going to tell... And it was funny because... Had you already picked her at that I point? I had already picked her, but I, I, I didn't know her name. Like, I knew the woman, I knew the story, but I couldn't remember her name. Right. So after I had, like, started my notes, I was editing our last episode, I was like, oh, shit! That, that's <laughs> fantastic. I, I it, It's so funny. I feel like sometimes we're so in sync with each other. I think, like, and I feel like we've been having. Time. I, I know because a lot of members of the LGBTQ plus community put up with a lot of the uh, same bullshit. And so there are obviously these common threads that run through. Right. But I feel like this, this month we've had a lot of like, oh, they worked at the same organization or we've talked about that place before. They were all at Stonewall or, or you know, like the, these common threads are like, this is when they learned the word lesbian and like had a word to describe themselves. Exactly. And so it's just, I don't know, it's just like like the best last little piece of kismet so i love it so edith edie windsor was born on june 20th 1929 in philadelphia pennsylvania where it's always sunny mm. <sighs> i love that show. I love, yeah i know i was like that's such a good show and her her birthday was like six days ago Oh, nice. Because it's, uh, upon this recording, it is June 26, 2020 at 6.02 p.m. 6.03. Central Standard Time. Well, fuck yours, Kelly. <laughs> uh, she was the youngest of three born to Russian Jewish immigrants, James and Celia. Now, she was living my dream because she was living above a joint candy ice cream store, which her father ran. So we're living in the city, and you know how people used to live above yeah, their no, shops. No, my yeah. my face was like, why can't that be my life? Right? Maybe uh, not the candy. I would. I want like a joint ice cream and bookstore. Can't I have all three? Yeah. I want to get fat while reading. <laughs> That'd be great. I'm just gonna eat all the candy. Like a cat just curled up in the corner by a fireplace with a book. Anyone tries to come candy. bother me, I just go. Shh. Yeah, exactly. It's just kind of what it's I want to do to, to normal people in any other situation. Right. Especially now when you're like six feet. (laughs) Right. Edie's family was already of modest means, but the Great Depression rocked them hard. Yeah, nobody's buying ice cream and candy. Yeah. Her father lost his shop and the family lost their home, which sucked. Edie also experienced anti-Semitism in school. Oh, no. Yeah. So she had kind of like a rough upbringing. I couldn't find a ton more information about her childhood, but like things were hard. Growing up, Edie did date boys, but she remembers having crushes on girls. But like, yeah, it's the whole you're you don't not have a word for it. it. Yeah. So for this, it's like you don't you're just like, I date boys. That's what girls do. Yeah. And I do believe that she identified as she did identify as a lesbian um, instead of being bi or pansexual, I believe. Okay. If I'm wrong, I couldn't find anything that said she was bi or pan, but I am open to the possibility that I could be wrong. Right. But we fully admit that we make mistakes. Yes. I mean, who knows? Maybe I was like one article away from finding out like she actually used he, him pronouns or I don't know. (laughs) Guys, like it's very easy to respect someone's gender identity, but like it's not black and white. No, anymore. it's not. And that's, you know, and and it never was. That is exactly the conversation me and Emily had. And that's why I feel bad that when I was talking about Polly I kept switching he him her you got so used to it yeah it's it was very interesting well and And I so I'm not I'm not doing it to be insensitive I'm not doing it to you know be like oh you know I'm a straight individual and you know I use her no I'm not doing that it's because in my mind all my research said her 
but I feel like it should have been him. And the important thing is to acknowledge it, correct it, and try to do better. Yeah. Like, so, that's all we can do. I'm sorry for my mixing of pronouns. It's going to bother me <laughs> forever. Edie eventually attended Temple University to pursue her bachelor's degree. Nice. During college, her brother's best friend, Saul Windsor, proposed to her. Edie and Saul had known each other, like, forever. Yeah. And she deeply respected him. Like, I think they were really good friends. Uh, though she accepted his proposal, Edie later broke off the engagement when she fell in love with a female classmate. Right. Now, being a lesbian in the 50s was not an easy thing. It's not even like that easy now. Yeah. In fact, you could get arrested or murdered for it and no one bad an eye. Kind of, I mean, things things are still not great, but it was super, super bad then. Yeah. Edie did not pursue her feelings for her classmate or any other woman. Instead, reconciling with Saul and marrying him after graduation, taking his last name, which she did keep throughout the rest of her life. Uh, Well, because I'm sure if, I'm assuming the way you said that, I'm assuming they break up at some point. And I'm sure, hopefully he understood, but I'm sure it was, you know, he, she still respected him, so she had no reason not to keep the last name. It's such a pain in the ass to get your last and name that. changed, too. Unsurprisingly, they divorced within a year of getting married, and Edie moved to New York City, hoping to connect with other lesbians. Unfortunately, hmm. the gay scene was not one without conflict. Bars were frequently raided by the cops, and there was constant threat of violence or being outed. So it was not like a cohesive environment to like express yourself. She did confide in Saul at one point that you know she had feelings for women. I couldn't find anything about how that turned out, but mm. I I feel like if it went really badly, maybe she would have not kept his last name. So right. I'm giving Saul the benefit of the doubt here. So Edie was bright as hell. After earning her bachelor's from Temple University in 1950, she went on to earn her master's in mathematics from New York University. Longtime listeners know that I equate math with magic, so Edie basically became a wizard. Nice. She applied her wizard we wizard we. Mewage. Mewage is what brings us together today. Nice. Uh, she applied her wizardry to a position with IBM and even studied applied mathematics at Harvard in her free time because she's a queen. Edie went from being a mainframe programmer to a senior systems programmer, which was the highest level technical position. Nice. I don't know if it still is, but at the time it sure as hell was. Edie even received the first IBM PC in New York City. Super cool. In 1963, Edie met the Aspire, a psychologist. Fuck Thea, yeah. Right? Sorry. <laughs> I, I knew you would like that. I knew you'd be like, yeah, Thea. I mean, even IBM in my mind, I'm like, Minnesota. Right? Thea uh, w- had been born in Amsterdam on October 8th, 1931, to a Jewish family who had escaped to the United States when the Nazis invaded. So, like, they escaped the Holocaust. Thank God, because right. probably would not be here. Unfortunately, the United States wouldn't protect Thea from discrimination. While enrolled at Sarah Lawrence College in Yonkers, New York, which... I like that name. How do people live in Yonkers and not laugh every time someone says, that? oh, I'm from Yonkers. <laughs> I'm they sorry, might. what? Like- they might. <laughs> you don't know that they don't. We lost all of our listeners from Yonkers. That's okay. Uh, so... She was expelled after campus security saw her and another woman sharing a kiss. 
There's a bullshit. major eye roll over here. Yeah. Like, my brain hurts. Right. It's just like, really? You're so stupid. Despite this setback, Thea went on to earn her bachelor's and then her master's and PhD in clinical psychology. Fuck yeah. Because she's a goddess reading your mind and telling you that you're causing your problems with your poor choices. <laughs> Can that be my theme song? I'm going to like... You're going to have your own psychology like radio show or infomercial and that is going to be your theme song. I really want it to Dr. be. Dr. Kelly reading your mind and telling you that you caused all your problems <laughs> with your poor choices. Yeah. Yes. Bring you, it. You need to. It's going to be um, our spinoff, Dr. Kelly. You need to cut out that audio and send it to me. It'll be like my <laughs> ringtone. Oh my God. I, I'll do that. I'll totally record you a, a podcast for your. Wine. Oh no. Is it yours? It's either yours or a dog's. It's not mine. I'm going to say it's, it's a too dog's. too dark to be mine. I feel like it's too little to be mine. Like, this shit's getting long. Especially because I, I haven't know. been, I haven't got my hair cut in, hold on, almost five months. Yeah. Holy shit. So I have to, I have to apologize now that we're kind of on a segue anyways. Uh, one, I haven't eaten and this wine's hitting me pretty hard. Two, uh, I've been dealing with my head being all over the place, so I'm all over the place, and I apologize. So if this episode's kind of all over the place, I take full responsibility. Kelly caught my mania. Yeah, I I was real up, bad. I was up too late last night, and I worked in a nap today. So I'm actually I'm like I took a nap today too, but I chill. I'm still <laughs> I'm still riding. It's like day three of mania. It's not it's not fun. It's it's super not. Okay, actually, I did a lot of organizing day one, though. Building on that segue, really quick. Uh, so one of our listeners commented on our uh, on our Facebook under one of our episodes where I was talking about struggling with like feeling manic mm -hmm. and depressive and mm -hmm. all that stuff. And I I don't have her name in front of me, and I don't have permission to share it, so I won't. Yeah. Um. But she had commented, she's like, you know, especially with quarantine, like, I've been feeling the same way a lot. And it's just, it's really, like, nice to know that someone else feels right. that You're way. You're not like, alone. It's comforting. And we love you. And here's the thing. I commented back and I was I like, I'm not crying. Because it made me feel the same way. I was like, oh, shit. One of our listeners totally gets it. And then reached out to express that. And right. that, like, we made them feel better by being open about it. And then them being open about it makes made us me feel, feel better. Really yeah. So hopefully no, this I read, makes her feel better again. <laughs> I, I read it, too. And I was like, I would have responded, but you already had gotten to it. And I was like, I'm not yeah. crying. You're crying. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I like that you feel comfortable talking about, like, hey, I'm feeling really manic today. Right. And it's been like this for it's three days. slightly better today. That walk that probably walk helped. helped. We walked. It's like kind of well, and I, it's day three, so it's like kind of like starting to taper off. Tuesday was the worst, and I was up until three a.m. No, Monday I was up till three a.m. That was bad. And then Tuesday, I like took a really long nap, and then the whole afternoon and evening, I was super manic. So I, I like organized like half of my house. I'm not even joking. And then yeah, yesterday we went for a really long walk, which helped. And then today. I'm still semi-manic, but yeah, it's it's coming down. But then you put wine with it and it's, then you it's all loose. over the place. Then okay, you get loose Go back to your story. All right. So uh, I got to find my place again. Okay. So we left off. Thea is a psychology queen. Uh, she ran a successful pra private practice and was also a skilled violinist. Ooh. So your theme song is going to have to have like some violin in the in background. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Edie and... Thea met at a restaurant in Greenwich Village, which, of course, 
constantly comes up in these stories because it was like the center of gay culture in New York. Yeah. At the time, they are both seeing other people, but the two kind of kept bumping into each other over the next two years. Like, I, th- I don't know if they ran in the same circles or what the deal was. Uh, but they finally took a trip to the east end of Long Island in 1965, and it was on this trip that they made it Facebook official. Like, Heck yeah. Thea gave Edie her class ring, and Edie right. gave Thea her varsity jacket, jacket and yep. they, were, they were a couple, because that's how you did it back then before Facebook. Now again, being in an open same-sex relationship was not easy or always safe at the time. To explain their closeness... Edie told her co-workers at IBM that she was in a relationship with Thea's brother, Willie. Thea did not have a brother named Willie. Willie was actually the name of a doll Edie had as a kid. But I also liked, I'm like, Willie's another name for penis. So I love that you're you're a lesbian and your fake boyfriend is named named Willie. (laughs) That is kind of fantastic. It made me happy. In 1967, Thea proposed to Edie despite Aww. it not being legal anywhere in the United States. In lieu so of a cute, traditional, though. right? Because, I mean, it's, it's the emotional connection. In lieu of a traditional engagement ring, which might expose their relationship, Thea instead proposed with a diamond pin. Quote, she got out of the car and got down on her knees and said, Edie Windsor, will you marry me? And this pin appeared, Edie recalled. Like, it made me cry. IBM may have eventually found out about Edie and Thea's relationship uh, because despite all of Edie's success at IBM and praise for her, quote, top-notch debugging skills, the company didn't see fit to allow her to name Thea as the beneficiary on Edie's insurance. So, boo. The two moved into an apartment in Greenwich Village and purchased a vacation home on Long Island. And they would uh, they would celebrate their home. anniversary, like, in Long Island on Memorial Day and, like, have a whole cookout and, like, do a thing. And they did that, like, every year. And it just makes me so happy. Right. Edie and Thea enjoyed traveling throughout the United States and abroad. Upon returning from a trip to Italy in June of 1969, they discovered the Stonewall Uprising had begun the night before. Inspired by the watershed moment, Edie and Thea began to attend marches and other LGBTQ plus advocacy events. So they kind of like... So while researching the story, my heart kind of kept aching for how Edie had to constantly deny or hide her feelings for women. Even when she felt comfortable enough to be in a relationship with a woman and accept that she was a lesbian, you know, they she, she took such great pains to keep it a secret right. and everything had to be so covert. Like even their engagement was kind of overshadowed by the sense of secrecy. Then Stonewall happened and Edie and Thea became very involved in the community and activism. And I felt like it was like Stonewall wasn't just a a rebellion, but it was like this giant coming out. And it kind of gave Edie and Thea the sense of like, we do have a community here who is ready to fucking fight and we need to join the fight. And I just thought that was really sweet. Like it was it was a giant coming out. I loved it. Yeah, that's. That's a good way to view it. Like, I never thought of Stonewall that way. I always thought it was like, this is the spark. This is the rebellion. But it was also this coming together. And it was this, like, coming out moment. You know, we're not going to hide in the shadows. Fuck you. Right. After 16 years at IBM, Edie left in 1975 and revved up her activism. Holy shit. I can't read my notes today. 
She volunteered for the Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders, the East End Gay Organization, the LGBTQ Community Center, or sorry, the LGBT Community Center, uh, the 1994 Gay Games in New York, and even helped found the improv group Old Queers Acting Up. That's fantastic. And they they were like an activist group who like talked about justice and equality through their improv. And I'm just like, old queers acting up. I fucking love it. I do too. Edie may have even known Mabel Hampton, who I covered in episode 62, because she also served on the board of services and advocacy for the GLBT elders or SAGE, which Mabel was a huge part of. Yeah. In 1977, Thea was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. For those who don't know, multiple sclerosis or MS is a degenerative disease in which your brain loses the ability to effectively communicate with the rest of your body. And while symptoms differ from person to person, sufferers can lose their mobility, vision, bladder function, or even like experience pain in different parts of their bodies because it's like your immune system starts attacking the um, myelin or the covering around your nerves. And so it like, it it, kind of reminds me of like a short circuit. You know, something's chewing away at these these nerves yeah. and exposing them. Yep. And then like your brain cannot control yeah. parts of your body. And it's it's one of those things sufferers have different levels of severity, but it just it usually just gets worse. And there's no tr- there's no cure. There's only treatment for the symptoms, which are like constantly getting worse and changing. Okay. And it's a nightmare. Yeah, it's a nightmare. No, it's not. Anything to do with your brain is never, yeah, never good. Edie began dedicating more time to being Thea's full-time caregiver, adjusting their day-to-day to accommodate Thea's developing symptoms. On March 1st, 1993, New York began to recognize domestic partnerships for same-sex couples. That same day, Edie and Thea registered and received the 80th certificate. Aww. And so... Now, a domestic partnership allows for some of the same legal rights that a marriage does with notable exceptions. And actually, I looked it up. There's still a thing in New York. I was like, why the fuck would you need it if people can get married? But people who are like dependent on each other in a non-romantic way. So like, say both of our partners died and we decided like, hey, we're, we not, be together. we're not a romantic couple, but we're going to support each yeah. other financially. Marriage. Yeah. Without the sex. <laughs> We could apply for a domestic partnership to get some of the same legal rights. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. But remember when everyone was super hung up on these? Like there was the argument that same-sex couples should be satisfied with domestic partnerships, but God forbid you call it a marriage. Like the title seemed to be this real sticking point. Well, you can't call it a marriage. Why the fuck not? It's a word. It can mean right. whatever the hell we want it to be. And actually, it already means this like ah what the fuck anyway in 2002 thea's health problems only worsened when she suffered a heart attack and was diagnosed with aortic stenosis did not get into it it's just bad in 2007 thea's doctors estimated she had less than a year to live new york still hadn't legalized same-sex marriage and wouldn't until 2007 Uh, So the couple traveled to Toronto, Canada, which had officially legalized it in 2005 and were married on May 22nd, 2007 by the country's first openly gay judge, Justice Harvey Brownstone. Sup, sup, Harvey. Sup, sup. Uh, Their marriage announcement was published in the New York Times, which I thought was really sweet. 
Thea managed to beat the doctor's estimates, but not their expectations. On February 5th, 2009, she died due to complications related to her heart condition. Hmm. After decades of living with, loving, and caring for Thea, her death took a serious toll on Edie, who was hospitalized with stress cardiomyopathy, which is basically a broken heart. Mm -hmm. It's like you suffer a trauma and your heart just weakens. That's what killed Padme. Technically, Anakin being an asshat killed Padme. But, but like, yeah, yeah. You know. Edie recovered, but her troubles were not over. Edie was the executor and sole beneficiary of Thea's estate. Now, normally when a marital partner dies, the surviving spouse doesn't have to pay taxes on anything inherited from the deceased partner thanks to unlimited spousal deductions. It's like, you guys were married, you shared a life together, like what's theirs is yours, you know? Right. However, because the U.S. government did not recognize their marriage, Edie had to pay $363,053 in taxes for her own wife's estate. Quote, if Theo was Theo, I would not have had to pay that, Edie recalled. Truth. Like, what is the difference here? Edie was not going to take this lying down. She applied for an estate tax exemption, but was denied thanks to Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA. Remember DOMA no. and how that was like a swear word? Like, I fuck it. I, that, no. So, Section 3 of DOMA defined marriages as only being between a man and a woman. Yeah, but you asked me if I remembered it, and I don't. It was bullshit. She's all a bunch of bullshit. DOMA had been signed into law by Bill Clinton in 1996 for the purposes of defining marriage for federal cases and basically enabled states to make same-sex marriages illegal because it strictly defined marriage but being between a man and a woman. Okay. It left no middle ground. And I, I got a little into it. I was like, Bill Clinton's an asshole. Don't yep. get me wrong. But I was like, man, I didn't think he'd be, he was on that side of the debate. Same. It was a majority like Republican mm. Congress at the time. And they actually had enough votes where Bill Clinton couldn't veto it. So even if he was not into it, I was like, what the, like, what? This checks and balances, but what the fuck? And I didn't realize it was so recent. I was like, 1996? Yeah. Like, I I understand that same-sex marriage was not legal in a lot, in anywhere, really, before then. But this, like, made it federally illegal. And I was like, what? like, God damn it, guys. Right. That's bullshit. Something else that's weird about this is that in 2008, a year after Edie and Thea, uh, or no, a year before Thea died... Uh, Governor David Patterson ordered state agencies to recognize same-sex marriages that had been legally performed elsewhere. Hmm. So that way, if you get married in D.C. where it was legal uh, and moved to New York, you don't lose your marriage and yeah. you don't lose your rights. Okay. You know, uh, this should have also applied to Edie and Thea, but it wasn't a federal law and these were federal taxes. And that, that's a I don't know if, uh, how many other countries like deal with this or like how it works because right. I know there are local governments and then there's like the country's government but we have the state laws and then the federal law and so that's why it is fe- uh, cannabis is federally illegal yep. but a bunch of states have legalized it recreationally and they can do that but it can still be federally illegal it's shit gets crazy this is something that really plagued the fight for same-sex marriage. At the time, it was legal in some states, but not others. It also became legal in some states only to become illegal again. Really? Because it would become legal, and then people would be like, no, fuck you. Like, it used to be, uh, I think it used to be legal in California, and then they made it illegal. 
Like they went back on it. So even after same sex marriage was legalized, a bunch of people were terrified it was going to get overturned. You know, like, oh, God, what they're going to try to take it away. My herstory headcanon is that this is the part where Edie throws up her hands and says, fuck it, before deciding to sue the federal government, demanding a refund on her taxes because DOMA was bullshit. Right. Now, remember, Edie and Thea were legally married, and Edie argued that DOMA gave legally married same-sex couples, quote, differential treatment compared to other similarly situated couples without justification. Or in non-legal terms, DOMA's definition of marriage was nonsensical bullshit. They're like, there, there's no difference. Like, I am legally married to my spouse. The fact that she's a woman shouldn't have any bearing because this did happen right. somewhere where it was legal. First, Edie sought help from different gay rights advocacy groups without success. She was finally referred to lawyer Roberta Kaplan, who recalled, quote, when I heard her story, it took me about five seconds, maybe less, to agree to represent her. Roberta was no stranger to this fight. In 2006, she represented the plaintiffs in the 2006 Hernandez Hernandez v. Robles case that challenged the laws against same-sex marriage in New York. She lost. With Roberta's help and the help of the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, Edie sued through the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. The Department of Justice released a statement that they had successfully defended Section 3 of DOMA, uh, where precedents had been necessary for re-reviewing the rationality of law. So basically, you had to have a precedent to argue your case or like, yeah. or by by defending DOMA, they had set a precedent and you couldn't like go back. I Full disclosure, this gets into some legal territory. I am not a lawyer. And this was giving me a headache. So I really did my best to just simplify this and get the main points across. So, however, Edie had filed her lawsuit in a district where there wasn't precedent. Basically, this jurisdiction hadn't ruled on the issue already. So the Department of Justice was forced to reexamine the issue and determine they could not defend the constitutionality of Section 3 of DOMA. So they were like... Yeah, yeah, I guess it's bullshit. Right. Like, and I was like, what? <laughs> it was that easy, but it's it's not. Now, a lot of the American justice system is above my head, and honestly, trying to unpack all this was a lot, so I will summarize. Edie's case made its way through the lengthy appeals courts before reaching the Supreme Court, which is the uh, highest court in the United States, and they agreed to review the case in 2012. This was years of fighting, trying to prove your case over and over. And I can only imagine how emotionally exhausting it was. Right. Like when I was fighting with the appeals with the VA, I it was so stressful. And this is so much bigger. I mean, this is massive. Right. You're basically taking on the government. Yeah. And it wasn't just stressful for Edie. This was an extremely stressful time in the LGBTQ plus community. The Supreme Court was going to rule on whether or not the government had the right to define marriages based on sex. And if they maintained that it was constitutional to prevent same-sex couples from marrying, it would have been a devastating blow to the movement. Yeah. Some activists worried that this was too soon for this fight. Mary Bonato of the Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders commented that the Supreme Court would n- would want to make sure that, quote, they were not too far ahead of public opinion because there would have been so much Another blowback. And I'm like, guys, you are the highest court in the land. Like, 
And I understand public opinion is a huge thing. And that's what all this advocacy has been leading up to. But I'm like, like, what's right is right. Okay. Let's like. Especially if there's, if you look at a law and you're like, yeah, this is bullshit. Yeah. Like, how did this get through? Like, what was going on? 90s. What the fuck? Was everyone still coming off of all the 80s coke? Like. Probably. In June of 2013. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled five to four, so it was fucking close, that DOMA was unconstitutional and could not be enforced. Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote in the majority opinion, quote, DOMA instructs all federal officials and indeed all persons with whom same-sex couples interact, including their own children, that their marriage is less worthy than the marriage of others. No legitimate purpose overcomes the purpose and effect to disparage and to injure those whom the state sought to protect in personhood and in dignity. So they're like... Yeah, it tells you you're a lesser person. You're not entitled to the same rights and happiness as someone else. And stupid. And that's bullshit. This was a landmark victory, which resulted in sweeping changes and extended rights to same-sex couples, including legally married same-sex couples were now now federally recognized for tax purposes, even if their state didn't recognize same-sex marriages. So that means Edie... I, I couldn't find anything if she did get reimbursed the $300,000, but I would assume she has to. Like, right. that's the whole point of the suit. She wants her fucking money back. Also bullshit. Federal employees in same-sex marriages can now apply for spousal benefits. Death benefits would be paid to surviving spouses. Same-sex spouses were eligible for equal benefits and joint nursing home placement under Medicare. Same-sex couples were eligible for full benefits from the Veterans Affairs or the VA. Hell yeah. And so much more. So much more. And the the big deal is that this is on the federal level. Right. Which is huge. The government can no longer discriminate against you and your partner. This was all amazing, but it didn't officially make same-sex marriage legal nationwide. That would happen on June 26th, 2015, the day we are recording right fucking now. Did not do that on purpose. I literally, I was like, June 26th, what day is it? Oh, my God. (laughs) Edie's victory helped uh, overcome a major obstacle allowing for same-sex marriage to become legal. So there was another court case, but basically she defeated DOMA, which meant like, which makes it they, easier they, for you the other couldn't, court You cases. couldn't defend DOMA, which is what all of this like uh, discrimination yeah. was being built off of. But I got a little confused. I was like, I'm sorry. So you said DOMA is unconstitutional, but it didn't make it legal. It made it so it couldn't be illegal. But right. It's, it was weird. I remember the day that same-sex marriage was legalized, though, because so we were living together in the apartment. And I came home. And I can't remember if you told me or your uh, husband told me. But I literally, I was like, that's not fucking funny. And like, we don't like, joke no, about it, that. Because serious. I didn't believe it. No. It just, it seemed to come out of nowhere. I was like, oh my God. And I, everyone was so happy. There was so much to celebrate. It was just such a beautiful moment. And now it's 2020. It's been legal for only five years. And I'm like, we have lived most of our lives with this horrific oppression and so many people have lived and died never being able to marry. Right. Like, it's such bullshit. It's, 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 it's beautiful, but it's bittersweet because it's like, God, why did it take us this long? 
When commenting on the 2015 victory, then-President Barack Obama stated, quote, I thought about Edie that day. I thought about all the millions of quiet heroes across the decades whose countless small, small acts of courage slowly made an entire country realize that love is love and who, in the process, made us all more free. They deserve our gratitude, and so does Edie. I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> like, I'm crying. God damn it. Edie did get remarried this time legally in the oh. United States to Judith Casson uh, when she was 87 years old. I think Judith is still around because she was only like 51 when she got. Yeah, there was a bit of an age gap wow. there. <laughs> That's a big age gap. No, I'm not judging this. Edie, the woman who defeated Doma, died on September 12, 2017 at 88 years old. In her statement confirming Edie's death, her wife Judith said, quote, I lost my beloved spouse, Edie, and the world lost a tiny but tough-as-nails fighter for freedom, justice, and equality. Edie was the light of my life. She will always be the light for the LGBTQ community, which she loved so much and which loved her right back. President Obama had apparently spoken to Edie a few days before she died and told her, quote, one more time, what a difference she made to the country we love. Wow. I'm not crying. Legacy. Edie has won so many like, awards. I feel like you don't even need this part because her legacy is so many. I didn't include it all, uh, but she did win one that was called the Edie Windsor and Thea Spire Equality Award, which is named I, know, after I would her really Thea. hope she was like the first recipient of it. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure that was the point. But I love that Thea was in there too because the fight was for Thea. Right. You know, and had Thea been alive, she would have been right there with Edie. You know, and like, well, I'm, it might not have started because then Edie wouldn't have had to pay three thousand oh, dollars. No. <laughs> On April twenty fourth, two thousand fourteen, Edie was honored alongside Stormy Delavari by Bro- the Brooklyn County Community Pride Center. I think I totally botched her last name. Delavari is that how you say it? How would you say it? I should have looked oh, it God. up. I should I should relook it up. All right. Well, she was honored alongside alongside Stormy, Stormy so she was in your legacy section as well. She also received the Presidential Medal and was named by the Equality Forum as one of their 21 icons of the 2015 LGBT History Month. In 2019, Edie was one of the inaugural 50 Americans inducted on the uh, National LGBTQ Wall of Honor in the Stonewall National Monument, which is the first national monument dedicated to LGBTQ (laughs) plus rights and history. Because she's there with Stormy, right? Stormy's in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, so it's sure it's Stonewall. De Larvery. De Larvery. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I feel like I just talked about that. Well, we're going to keep talking about it. Never going to stop. Before her death. give you up. Don't you fucking rickroll me on our own podcast. How dare you? (laughs) Before her death, Edie had begun writing a memoir, which was finally published in October 2019, called A Wild and Precious Life. And she had like a a co-author who had helped her finish it. And it's really sweet. The greatest legacy Edie leaves us is the freedom for every same-sex couple to love and marry who they want and enjoy the same rights as every heterosexual couple. As every couple, period. As every couple, period. Exactly. And so fucking Edie, the lesbian who defeated Doma, and no one misses it. Right. 
People miss her, but not Doma. I miss her. It was, it was, I didn't realize she was dead. So when I looked her up, all these articles I was finding were the headlines like, Edie Windsor died. I'm like, no, <laughs> I want her to be alive forever. She's not allowed to die. She has to become a cyborg. No, seriously. Like, why is Walt Disney... Disney's head cryogenically frozen like we should have kept Edie alive. Did they only freeze his head? I think they did because they're going to put him on like one of the animatronics from the uh, the Splash Mountain ride, which they're revamping to be Princess and the Frog theme. I saw that. Which I think is awesome because like literally no one knows what Song of the South is outside the context of, oh, that one super racist movie. Super (laughs) racist. Like apparently the ride used to be like worse, like because it actually was like directly song of the south and then they kind of just changed it to be more like peter cotton or not peter cottontail um briar briar rabbit, rabbit and briar fox who most people don't know who that is in briar bear i i went uh, on I that actually ride just, and had no idea right? who the characters you're, were i was like oh no, you're just like this rabbit. Is, yeah you're like oh this is cute um <laughs> yeah i actually there's a youtube channel called defunct land who does like rides at disney that didn't do very well or like and he i just watched one where he covered splash mountain and um song of the south and it was really interesting well and what's funny i was watching one of those disney documentaries on disney plus and they were talking about how they were trying to come up with a new ride and there was a ride that they were going to retire that had a ton of animatronic animals and so they were like well we've got this old movie that has talking animals We've also got all these existing animatronic animals. Let's put it just together. Moved them over, yeah. yeah, like this wasn't like a making a ride is a labor of love, but no one was like, "This is because Song of the South is such an important movie." They were like, "We have all these animatronic animals. Let's just like do it." Okay, right. cool. Like, yeah, I know. I, I just saw that article that they're revamping it to be Princess and the Frog. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, people are throwing a fit, and I say they can throw a fit because it's going to happen, and then everyone's going to be like, right. hey, remember when everyone gave a shit? Right. And no one cared that they and gave the thing a shit? Is, and now it's just what we know. It's still going to be Splash Mountain, isn't it? They're yes! not, like, removing just... the ride. They're just changing the theming, aren't they? Yeah. It's, it's the same fucking ride. You still get in the log and you go down the mountain and you get wet and you sit in water and everyone thinks you pissed yourself, but you didn't because it's Splash Mountain. I really want to go to Disneyland now. Oh, I kind of do too. I've been watching all those Disney documentaries and like, guys, I know Disney on is our problematic her- on our in a lot of ways, tour, but um, We're going to have to make a stop at Disneyland. What's a, what's a feminist attraction or monument in Florida? Yeah. Help us out, people. Yeah. Tell us slide into our dms okay sorry like i said distracted so i am covering people recommended by our lovely lovely listener becca hi becca Becca. i love her i know she's so nice i think um i think she won one of our wine glasses right yeah and that was one of the uh the classic ones i hope she is enjoying it what's up becca she had also um Oh, she talked about women in piracy, and that was like right after I had covered. Um, oh God, Grace, Grace, Grace O'Malley. O'Malley. So like that was kismet too. Um, but yeah, so she asked me to cover. I'm gonna butcher names here: Susan Malherby and Lucy Schwab, or Schwab, one of the two. So that's who I'm covering today. Well, we're, we're probably not. We usually use first names, so hopefully you yeah. won't have to say it a ton, right? You just go Schwab, Schwab. So just su- say it real quick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Suzanne Albert Malherb um, was born in Nantes, France on July 19th, 1892. I didn't find a whole lot about her childhood, actually either of their childhoods. It kind of just skips to when they're teenagers. So 
Sorry. It makes me think of the It's Always Sunny bit where uh, the guys are talking about how men age gracefully and like a, a woman is a woman and then she's an old woman and then she dies. But men are men and then they die. They don't become old. They just right. die. And so it's like child, man, death. Them, child, woman, old woman, old woman, death. death. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Okay. So um, Suzanne studied at the Fine Arts Academy in Nantes. And then at the age of 17, she met 15-year-old Lucy Schwab and began a, began a lifelong artistic collaboration and relationship. Just need to throw that in there. They made beautiful art together. Exactly. Lucy Schwab was born in Nantes in 1894. She was born into a provincial but prominent intellectual Jewish family. However, her mother died when she was four years old. Or no, she didn't die. She began suffering from mental illness and she was permanently placed in a psychiatric facility. She didn't die. I mean, that's kind of equivalent to dying back then. Yeah. Um, And because of her mother's absence, she was raised by her grandmother, Mathilda Cahoon. So, or Calhoun. That's a rough, that's a rough upbringing. So they met when they were teenagers. um, If she was 15, Lucy was 15. So that means Suzanne was 17 yeah so 17 and 15 so they met at school um and then a weird thing happened so in 1909 is when the girls met they began artistic collaboration and relationship obviously i'm assuming their parents didn't know because probs not yeah i want to give them credit but let's be honest then they became stepsisters because their mother and father married each other in 1917. Do you think they were like, hey, I think you're hot. You think I'm hot. Our kids get along great. Right. Like they, they just already seem like sisters. We should do this. And right. then the kids are like, oh, shit. Um, <laughs> well, and actually, um, it's been theorized by several people that the fact that they were stepsisters not only encouraged their collaborations, but also kind of diverted attention away from them being in a relationship because they're just like, oh, they're close. They're sisters. Uh- so it was like their cover. Unintentionally? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Do you, like they weren't parent trapping this so that they could be in a relationship more openly. It was just like, right. oh, cool. We can just tell people we're sisters and they're not going to bother us about being lesbians. Yes. Or gay. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> What? That was so intense. Um, So Lucy attended private school in Surrey, and then after experiences with anti-Semitism at the high school in Nantes, they went to Paris and were uh, was in school at the Sorbonne, which is huge. Yeah. Um, and they began making photographic self-portraits as early as 1912, which would have been age 18, and continued to take them throughout the 1930s. Around 1919, Lucy changed their name to Claude Cahoon. After having previously used the names Claude Carillus and Daniel Douglas. Did you say Danielle or Daniel? Daniel. Daniel. Okay. So I'm going to be switching my pronouns now because I was using he, she, or she, her, and I'm now going to be using they, them because that's, you'll see. Okay. And I would have used them earlier because that's probably more appropriate, but I was like, eh, at this point, they were being feminine. I'm sorry if that upsets people. So not only did she change her name just because she wanted to, but it was also her way of protesting. I'm sorry, I'm using her again. It was also their way of protesting gender and sexual norms. Uh, they they thrived on the ambiguity and purposely chose the name Claude because in French that could refer to either a man or a woman. So it'd be like naming yourself Alex, 
now. Yeah, or Jesse or yeah. okay, so it's gender neutral name. Yep, and, and they she were chose, like, "Why do we have to gender names, guys? Fuck you!" Right, and she chose the last name. Apparently, it's pronounced Ka Ka. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna. That's how. That's this pronunciation. But that doesn't. It looks like Cahoon. So that's what I'm gonna say. Okay. C H H U N. Okay. So it's Cahoon. And that was her grandmother's last. That name. was her grandmother's. Or, who, they, who sorry, ra- it was their, their grandmother's, grandmother's last, last name. Who, who raised them? Yeah. I know this story gets really confusing because I use they them for both of them. Plus, then they're also a couple, which is also they them. I am. I am also used to referring to the people we so it's cover gonna get a lot. with feminine pronouns. Exactly. So I am sorry. I am doing my best to. Um, get my shit together so claude made uh this ambiguity she felt a th- or he- they felt a theme in lifelong exploration of gender and sexual identity as a writer and photographer um and a lot of people in the lgbtq plus community still look to her art like to this day so so the the queer community identifies and still looks to their art that explores sexuality and you know kind of experimenting with gender norms and gender identity today yes that's super cool yes this this is a quote directly from claude that they wrote in their autobiography so it says quote masculine feminine it depends on the situation neuter is the only gender that always suits me i think that's really interesting so Um, it, it does seem like uh gender neutral yeah exactly yeah so not only did lucy change her name to claude suzanne went on and changed her name to marcel Moore, and then used they them pronouns as well yes okay so we Uh, have have claude and marcel now yes and they never came out uh marcel never came out and actually said like anything as strongly as claude did but I would assume they were probably also somewhat gender fluid. They just weren't as outspoken. Right. Maybe. Or their quotes don't survive. Right. Exactly. So I'm going to start with Marcel's career because they, they worked together, but they also were separate. They had, I mean, they had their own visions. And exactly. Their own lives and yeah. So from when she, from when they were early 20s, um, Marcel started working as a graphic designer and would do ornate illustrations. Um, this was when Japan. Japanism was really, really big in Paris. Um, which Everyone is, was super into Japan. Um, it's more art. like art influenced by Japanese art styles. Okay. So not like anime, but like the authentic, like if you look at like old like tap or not tapestries, but like paintings from Japan, yeah. it's kind of like that. Like the wave and all that. Although, yeah. can I just say, I would love some of that like, oh yes, the classic Japanese art. And it's like some big titted schoolgirl like going... Right. But it's like drawn super nice. (laughs) It's like old school. It's like, oh my God, this is Sailor Moon, but for the 30s. Right, exactly. She was also into big uh, Paris fashion at the same time because you remember they had moved to Paris. Yep. So she could go to the, or they could go to the Sorbonne. They actually had a very modern take on fashion designs and they were published in a lot of different magazines. Uh, It did happen to be owned by her family, but still. Okay. Because the, the, Schwab, the Schwab or Schwab public. family. Yeah, like she did really well. Um, they also went on to collaborate with Mark Adolf Gugan, who um, was a was a illustrator in his own right. Um, and so that's what she did. She or sorry, they Marcel was more into like illustrations and like that kind of work, whereas Claude was very much photography and stuff like that. So like mm-hmm. that's where their art differed. And unfortunately, Marcel kind of got lost in Claude's shadow. Okay. I mean, it, 
a lot it happens a lot with artistic couples and usually it's a man overshadowing a woman but in this case it was just i think um claude's work was a lot more public a lot more shocking mm-hmm. and so it, it ended up like overshadowing marcel while marcel yep. was a little more reserved yep and marcel's work was actually forgotten for a few decades and rediscovered in the 1980s um marcel. because because well because marcel was mainly just known as like claude's partner partner or collaborator because they did work together too but you know they you know so people didn't like realize that it reminds me a she little had bit her of, own stuff um, oh who did you call who did you cover um i'm trying Claudette to remember Claudel yeah yeah yep. and how she uh i'm trying to remember the famous guy she was. oh yeah rodan Ro- or rodan i don't remember how you say it i um, covered someone else that was married to someone famous and everyone just like forgot about her and oh was that like, was um it was the journalist who was at d-day yep. m martha martha gellhorn martha gellhorn that's it I feel like we've covered so many women. It's yeah, like I know. Oh, sometimes I can't keep it's them a straight lot. now. But yeah, Claudette Claudel was overshadowed by Rodin, but yeah. that was like a sexist thing. Yeah, which unfortunately happens to be it. And there's a lot of people. So like people knew that Marcel, you know, collaborated with Claude, but it's come to light recently that she might have or they might have had more of a hand in it than people like realize because in some of the pictures that are supposedly quote-unquote self-portraits were probably actually collaborations and in some of them you can see Marcel's shadow like because she's the one behind the camera taking the pictures okay so it's not just a self-portrait well, it's like yeah. Marcel is actually doing a portrait for Claude. exactly okay and it's supposed to look like a self-portrait so like they're like so Marcel had more of a hand in these works than I think a lot of people are you know then it's yeah exactly marcel would also illustrate claude's writing and so they would like kind of go they would work hand in hand and there's actually uh claude wrote a poetry volume that marcel pen and inked illustrated like that they published that's super cool and claude actually dedicated it to her quote i dedicate this perlu prose to you so that the entire book will belong to you and in this way your designs may redeem my text in our eyes so yeah, they actually went on to publish a second one too, which was translated into it was called Disavowed Confe- Confessions. It was more verses and illustrations. That sounds really sexy, right? I don't know Disavowed Confessions, like that's like a Daniel Steele novel. Um, and Marcel's illustrations um consist of a lot of collaged images assembled from a lot of different photos of Claude, but they also deal with a lot of the same themes of identity. So she was also. Or they were also, you know, probably struggling with it. Mm-hmm. Well, and something we've talked about a lot this month is having the the language to express yourself and describe who you are. And Polly, who you did for your say their name, mm-hmm. they did express, I, I, I feel like a man inside, yet they did not use masculine pronouns. Right. And like, whatever you want to do, that's fine. I respect it. But I wonder if part of that was that, like, that wasn't even in, in his conscious, like, to... to to be right. like or to, to transition publicly or maybe it was something he kind of realized later in life but never expressed and that's why all those articles use feminine pronouns because Polly wrote that memoir yep. using feminine pronouns because and what so, else was there yeah for her you know yeah so okay now i'm gonna move on to claude's work because that was marcel it's claude i keep wanting to say marcel the shell i know Oh, I want to go watch those videos now. Um, I appreciate them so much more now. So Claude um, did a lot of shoot. They were all kind of all over the place. Um, they did writing, photography, and theater, and it kind of kind of combined them all into one. 
Um, they're mostly remembered for their highly staged self-portraits and work that like really kind of, it was this Paris, so it was really big in surrealism, but it really kind of struck home, like looking at yourself and like, there's a lot of ones that like they would superimpose like them looking at themselves and they, you know, some of them, they were super feminine. Some of them were, they were a guy with a shaved head, like. They, they would just bounce around. Yeah, their, it, was, it was insane. Their, not only their gender identity, but how they uh, expressed it. Right. Some, some of them are... So some of the guises they use are aviator, dandy, doll, bodybuilder, vamp and vampire, angel, and Japanese puppet. Those are just some of the ones they did. Wait, wait. Those are like outfits that they yeah, use? Guises, personas oh, okay. that they put on. Yeah, so outfits for their self-portraits. That is, I want to see the vampire one. I know. That sounds amazing. Yeah, right? Anime vampires. Some vampire night shit up in here. Some, uh, oh man, Jared's got this vampire anime he really likes where the guy is a dumb fear. So he's like half vampire, mm-hmm. half human. I can't remember what it's called now. He's going to be so mad at me. But it's really good. They came out with a movie in the 80s and then like in the 90s. And it's like, it's crazy how much better the art and the quality gets. But the 80s one, it's like, oh, I remember when anime was like this. Right. (laughs) So Claude not only published those books of uh, prose with um, Marcel, but they went on to uh, also publish a book called Heroines, which is a series of monologues based upon female fairy tale characters intertwined with witty comparisons to the contemporary image of women, which sounds kind of awesome. And I really kind of want to read it. First of all, it's Vampire Hunter D is the anime I'm thinking of because I know a listener is like, Emily, it's Vampire Hunter D. God damn it. Hear me. Uh, but second, that kind of reminds me, have you ever read uh, Politically Correct Fairy Tales, where they basically yeah. like rewrote the fairy tales to be politically correct? And um, this reminds me of that, like in yeah. that same vein yeah. of like rewriting classic fairy tales that for a modern nice. audience. I want to read that. So in 1932, Claude joined the Association des... Oh, jeez. Des... He served Vivians et Artistes Revolutionaires, which I did not have an English translation for, but something, something Artist Revolution. We have not had to tackle French in a while, in quite a while, yep. and that thing came out of nowhere like a little Mack truck. Yep. Like, um, they met Andre Breton and Rene Crevel, which I'm assuming are famous French artists, but I don't know who they are. Um, and then they, that's when they really start, I mean, she was already, or they were already doing surrealist work, but this is when they really started, um, associating with like the surrealist group of artists in Mm -hmm. Paris at that time. And they later would actually participate in a number of exhibitions with all of these other surrealist artists. So it went well. That's awesome. I love that they're being recognized by other artists, you know? Right. I know it's it's and like nice. welcomed into the fold. Um, in 1934, Claude published a short polemic essay, which is just a type of essay. Oh, okay. Called Les Paris Saint Overs. None of this had English translations, and I didn't look <laughs> it up. The the uh, Paris something. I feel like you are Regina Ger- George, and this uh, French is the school bus. Right. Like, it's just coming out and, like, taking you out. And in 1935, uh, they also took part in the founding of a left-wing anti-fascist alliance um, alongside other surrealist artists. Which makes sense because this is when Hitler is starting to... Yep. He's he's 
already in power. Yep. He is he made his first like concentration camp in the like 32 or 33 mm-hmm. and there was already like a steady buildup of uh oh, yeah Nazism. 30 by 35 it was and we all strong. know germany came real hard for france right uh so breton the one i met andre breton i mentioned him before he was one of the surrealist artists they work with um once called claude quote one of the most curious spirits of our time end quote oh i like that one of the most curious spirits of our time. I want to look at that as a tattoo. Like, right. Just, I would a actually beautiful really like line. that. Yeah. I'm going to get you a wine glass. That just says it. Because I would be you, okay you with can that. drink spirits out of it. Yeah. See, it works on so many levels. Our co-host degrees. Our special guest right. degrees. All right. So I'm going to bring this back together to joint activism. I mean, even their work kind of ended up being together, but yeah. But now you're talking about them as a, a collective versus yep. this is what Marcel did, and this is what so Claude this is did. this is the they in the plural version, <laughs> not the singular version. Um, so in 1937, uh, they moved in Jersey, which I think is an island off of France. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's like a yeah. That's so what not New like New Jersey. After. Jersey, the original. Um, they were going to take on that Jersey pipeline like no one else. But they moved out there because of World War II and the outbreak of everything going on. It was a bad time. Especially in France. It was especially um, a bad time to uh, not be gender conforming or to be an artist well, and they or to be in a perceived same sex They didn't sit down and be quiet about it, though. Yeah. Um, they actually became active in a, re- in a resistance of fighter and propagandists. Uh, They worked extensively in producing anti-German flyers, which they would write and illustrate themselves. That is amazing. Um, They would actually also use uh, snippets of English to German translations that they would get from BBC reports on the Nazis' crimes that that they would put on their flyers, which um, they would paste together and create poems and harsh criticism about the Nazis. Uh, they would also dress up and attend German military events. Oh, shut up! Strategically placing them in sol- uh, strategically placing these flyers in soldiers' pockets on their chairs, etc. Like, yeah, that is wild! Oh my god! They would also crumple up flyers and throw them into cars and windows. I love it. I know, which is great. Productive littering. Well, what's interesting about the way that they protested is it, it wasn't only political, but it was artistic and it was creative and it was manipulative because they used it to manipulate and undermine this authority that they just hated, obviously. Well, in a room full of German soldiers. Right, they were just like, I'm just going to set this on the chair sudden, as I casually walk by. Nazi flyers are popping up. I, like, I can't, the only thing I can think of to make those leaders feel more stupid is if like 90% of the people didn't show up and right. they were talking to an empty Or, you know, stadium. like when you turn your PowerPoint on and instead of your PowerPoint, it's just an anti-Nazi flyer and you're yeah. like, well, fuck. I God. mean, PowerPoints weren't a thing back then, but that's that would be worse. This is like the, the 80s equivalent. Right. Uh, not 80s. You know what I mean. This is the uh, old school PowerPoint debacle. Right. And for Claude, I feel like this probably wasn't that different for them because her their whole life work was focused on undermining a certain version of authority you know like the general patriarchy basically um but you know this was much more felt because it you know it was very targeted and so like you know how when you like for me when i get mania like when i focus on something i get it done and i get it done well this was claude's version of like honing in on one threat 
I want to get back to challenging our culture as a whole. But I need to pause. Yeah. I need to take care of these motherfuckers. In 1944, they were both arrested and sentenced to death. No! But the sentences were never carried out. However, Claude's health really deteriorated when they were in jail or... Yeah, when they were in jail and they died in 1954. No! Stop it! Uh, Becca said that they might have committed suicide, but I couldn't find anything that said that. But Becca read a book about them, and I didn't. Or I didn't <laughs> read that particular book anyways. Yeah. So, Oh, yeah. why would you do that? Like, arrested? No, but they weren't executed. Yay, but sad. But Damn you! Um, she is, they are buried at the St. Brillade's Church. So we should go there. Yeah. Where is that in France? I it's in Jersey. Oh, well. Is so it yes. Jersey? Yes, part it's of in France. France. But okay. I, I was being more specific than France. Making me feel like know. a dumbass over here. <laughs> right. Aren't they in France? No, they're in Jersey. Isn't Jersey in France? Yes, but they are in Jersey. <laughs> right. Marcel went on to continue living. Stop licking my foot. Sorry. You know, you are being a really rude guest on this show by it was, it was licking us me. and like, just don't, don't lick my generally being very distracting with your cuteness and I your know. scrunchy little face. I know, I've oh been petting God. her on enough. She's so plush, right? like for a pug. After Claude died, uh, Marcel relocated to a smaller home because obviously it was just them. Yep. Um, and they actually ended up committing suicide in night. So oh. they lived for 18 years without Claude and then ended up committing suicide in 1972. That's so um, sad. But they were buried together. Good. Or next to each other, I assume. Yeah. Not, not they They dug up Claude, and then they put Marcel um, in there. Although, did you hear Marilyn Monroe? There's some rando dude buried, like, on top of her. Yeah. Facing down. I'm like, who the hell let that happen? Right. So a pervert gets to leer at a dead woman for all eternity? Yeah, that's What the creepy. fuck are we doing here? But yeah, so they, they were able to be buried next to each other, which is adorable. I like that. That's much nicer than what well, how especially because sometimes to spend her afterlife. if if you commit suicide there because it's this is Saint Brelade's so there are sometimes that Catholic so maybe it's not Catholic I guess I I when I see Saint something I immediately assume Catholic or Christian Christian's Christ- the smaller sect sorry no it, no Christ- Catholic's the smaller sect okay good I was right is any religion that believes Jesus is the Messiah Catholic is but um, I I've, I've heard umbrella. of other you know sometimes. Catholic cemeteries, if you um, kill yourself because that's seen as a mortal sin, yeah. won't let you be buried there. Yeah. And like different places have different rules. Like I think there are certain religions where if you get a tattoo, you can't like be buried in a specific cemetery because that's like defacing well, your I'd body. Be out. Or, yeah. <laughs> I am excluded from a lot of religious, you know, rites and organizations and rituals. So during their lifetime, Claude didn't necessarily want to be famous or like, you know, they didn't go out and look for, you know, it was all about just the, the art. They were just um, expressing themselves. And it wasn't until about 40 years after their death that Claude really became recognized for their work, which is great. I'm you glad know. they were eventually recognized. Yeah. Um, and like I said, it's it was a big thing, their adoption of gender a gender neutral name and um, how androgynous their portraits were and just how revolutionary their work was not and not just Claude, but both of them. Yeah. And it sounds like Marcel is being more recognized right now, even. And together, you know, they they challenged gender roles and attacked an increasing, you know, social and the social and economic boundaries. They were, you know, they're trying to push people out of their their comfort zones. 
Um, and it was also a big thing because a lot of the Parisian surrealist movement was men. And a lot of, if you look at surrealists, it's a lot of women, like isolated women, and they're semi-erotic. And so not only was she challenging, or not only were they challenging that. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. Navi's knocking your... Navi's trying to knock my my mic over. Navi, um, go. So not only were they challenging, like, how people view themselves and view things they were just challenging the surrealist movement as a whole i know all of a sudden i just see your mic tipping I'm like, i thought it was on? a goat because i was like i'm not touching it i thought it was a ghost <laughs> right um so there is a street sign named uh claude calhoun dash marcel moore in paris Aww. which is nice i know she's like eating something she was so good for like five. Th- I don't understand how people do podcasts with their pets in the room. Because she was great for like the first half of this. And now she's like, I'm tired of napping. I want to right. get in trouble. Um, so it's it's near where they had lived when they lived in Paris. Okay. The street that it's named after Aww, them. Um, like so the novel that I mentioned that Becca read is called Never Anyone But You. And I did read like a review of the novel, but I didn't have time to read the novel. Is it is it a novel or is it a biography? No, it's a novel. It's okay, a novel. so it, it's... They did write a biography that was called Disavowed. Okay. Um, that you can read, but um, Becca specifically mentioned this novel, uh, Never Anyone But You, which is based on their life together. Um, it's supposed to actually be really good. Like it's gotten a lot of really good reviews. Becca said she really enjoyed it. Um, and it is on my list to read now. I just didn't have time before this podcast. So maybe the idea that Claude completed suicide was part of the, the novel versus historical fact or potentially maybe that's, okay. and or maybe in the book, it's just vague. Yeah, maybe they like... Because, te- I mean, technically in my research, it was super... Because I, like, literally Googled, like, how did they die? And it just said, they, they died. died. in 1950-something. So that well, and, uh, like I said, the one source said um, they just never really recovered from being imprisoned. So I just assumed, like, their health deteriorated. And it could have even been their mental but it health, it, Well, too. yeah, there exactly. There some PTSD. So, it sounds like there was a lot know. of shit going wrong. Right, exactly. So in 1994, the Institute of Contemporary Arts in in London held an exhibit of Claude's photographs uh, um, that ranged between 1927 and 47, um, along with the work of two other young British artists. And it was a lot of, so it was a lot of like the surrealist stuff. And I, I'll have to look up these two artists. So the artists were Virginia Nimarco and Tacita Dean. So I wonder if maybe they do something similar. Okay, cool. I don't know didn't say um and then in 2007 david bowie created a multimedia exhibition of claude's work in the garden of the general theological seminary in new york david bowie yes like yep from the labyrinth yep and the bulge yep oh it my was, god it was part of something called the highline festival which i don't know what that is well that's cool yeah so yeah he you know he was like given a nudge which i mean because david bowie kind of pushed he definitely pushed the the boundaries, the boundaries. and gender so, yeah. norms and so becca i hope i did them justice but they were pretty amazing and i'll definitely put a bunch of claude's artwork or like self-portraits and then if i can find any of marcel's illustrations i'll throw those in two on the blog i'll probably throw one up next week during the week as well like one or two up on our social media so that people that don't go to the blog can see them but you should go to the blog because Kelly works really hard on it. Also, I'm going to apologize. I just realized I've been talking into the side of my mic versus the top because Kelly and I have changed our seating position a bit. So- Sorry, now we picked up a <laughs> tiny dinosaur and it's adorable. Oh, my God. 
So um, distracting. So but you'll just, my have, mic to, you'll just have to you'll just have to up your stuff. My mic was fine when I was staring at my computer, but now that I have turned to look at you, I did not adjust my mic accordingly. So I apologize if this audio is not as good as it I'm should sorry, be. I'm sorry, it's my fault. I got lazy and God didn't want to damn you, Kelly. change things up. But yeah, so that's that is our episode. And Emily, now that we're gonna have squeaking in the background, maybe <laughs> what are you thankful for? Um so do you want I me to kick her out now that no, Justin's home? No, she's fine. It's just, it's adorable and it's cute and it's making me laugh. Um, I am thankful that I got to hang out with Tierney yesterday on her birthday. We went to one of the local state parks I have never been to. We were hiking around there and like, it's so gorgeous. It is stunning. And at one point we had to cross a river that didn't have a bridge. Uh, so I like took my shoes off and went in barefoot, which was a bad idea because you. the rocks sharp were rocks. either sharp, shaky, or a combination of both. Uh, and then like to draft my feet, I was like walking on the paths barefoot and I'm like, can you paint with all the colors of the wind? You know what, <laughs> like, like I felt and like there was even a part where like a deer like leapt out of the woods, like really close to us and like leapt across the path where we had just been. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm like so one with nature right now. And then we went on a really long walk yesterday. I got my feet are fucked up, though. Because I made the mistake of doing this in new hiking boots and walking like a lot. I think like I think I walked like 16K yesterday. Like it was a lot. Um, So I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that time. Uh, I'm also thankful. So we had Father's Day last Sunday. And I'm really bad about getting my parents gifts because they kind of have everything they want or anything they want. Like I can't fucking afford that. So for Mother's Day, I got I wrote my mom a card using Barbara Streisand songs Which is in adorable. the titles because she loves Bar- oh my god Barbara oh my god and so uh, I decided to write my dad a card too but I I instead of making it like kind of funny I just like wrote from the heart yeah and I made him fucking cry I have seen my dad in counting this time like cry phone. three times in my life. And it was, and so I, I did, I, I was wearing masks and doing social distancing when I stopped by, but I broke down. I was like, fuck COVID. I don't know what else to do. And I gave him a hug. And right. that's the first time I've like touched one of my parents since like quarantine. So I'm thankful that I got to see him for Father's Day and make him cry. So like for a good reason, instead of just me being an asshole. <laughs> Navi's in Kelly's lap, like trying to lick her hands and the mic. What are you doing? What are you thankful for, Kelly? Damn it, I was like, yes, Navi, distract Emily. Are you you thankful for Navi being in your lap? I'm I'm always thankful for my puglets. Let's see, what did I do this week? Uh, Navi, you look so regal. She looks like she's posing for a a painting or something, which now she does have a painting. She has been painted like a queen. Which is awesome. Yeah. Um, Little princess. I'm really thankful, I don't know, for everyone in my life, like for me being able to be open about my mental health with the people that I've been sharing it with. Cause like I was able to share with Emily. I was able to talk to my husband about it. You just licked the microphone. <laughs> Kelly's um, such a professional. Cause Navi is licking her incessantly as she's like trying to share. <laughs> uh, like I was able to talk to my sister, which was kind of nice. Cause like we, ow, <laughs> we are never me. recording with the pugs again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We're six, <laughs> e- <laughs> we're six years apart, and so, like, growing up, we weren't the closest. 
And so like now being close enough that I can feel comfortable sharing my mental health struggles with her has been a big thing. But yeah, like, and just, you know, knowing that I can share on the podcast and people aren't going to judge me or if they do, they can go fuck themselves. You know, everyone has mental health struggles. Yep. Um. So yeah, I've just been really thankful for that because it, it helps. Yeah. It, it's good to know that you're not alone and that what uh, you're feeling, other people have felt that way and it, it normalizes it. You know, it, it's not something that you should have to live with or just be like, well, I guess I'm fucked up. Right. But it, it is good to know other people I mean, feel am, the same way. But... And you're not. Well, you're, you're not alone and you're not crazy. Exactly. I mean, this is just an experience you're having. And that's who I am. Other people have it and deal with it. And you can, too. So. Yeah. And Navi's really thankful for her dinosaur. She is. It's going to speak for her. It I love your came like, in a little egg. You're, you're like trying to share your feelings. And Navi is just like crawling up your lap squeaking the dinosaur but yeah like it came in a little egg so like now see it still has a piece of an eggshell on its head oh that's fucking cute no you don't get it back <laughs> well now i'm gonna try to jump at the mic so fuck you, you know, she's thinking about it. she's like can i get into your Here lap she is. to get the dinosaur Here she is navi what do you have to say Please tell, share was, with us your wisdom. I was going to laugh so hard if she squeaked the dinosaur like right yeah. when you said that. Navi, you have no timing. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whiny About Herstory with our special guest, Navi the Pug. That was, better. that was good hey, timing. Hey, listen. Uh, please like us on Facebook at Whiny About Herstory, Instagram, WAH Pod. Twitter at WAH underscore pod. We have a website, which is just whiningabouthistory.com, and our email is whiningabouthistory at gmail.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Your say their names, people you want us to cover, or just a, hey, hi, how are you? We love you. Uh, also, you can donate to our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whiningabouthistory. You can donate for as little as $1 a month, and if you donate our $10 a month level, you can get one of our handmade whining about history wine glasses yes. drink your empowerment you have to just subscribe at the ten dollar month level for two months yep because i hand make those and it takes me time and energy yes um also please rate us five stars wherever you listen yes, it really helps us it helps people find us and it just gives us all our warm fuzzies yeah and we love you well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. That's Navi. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.